0: hip-hop was still relegated to independent labels and block parties in the summer of 1986. Record industry executives noted that it was impossible for pop radio to bridge the divide between hip-hop and pop. Not hard, but impossible. That is until Def Jam mogul Rick Rubin, the producer for Rap Heavyweight's Run DMC's third album, made a call to Steven Tyler and the Aerosmith camp. Rubin grew up a fan of the band, but after their global success in the 1970s, a newer generation of consumers brainwashed by MTV had turned their backs on the Boston standouts. He saw an opportunity for Aerosmith to revitalize their career while pushing Run DMC into a new market by recording a refreshed version of the 1975 hit Walk This Way. Despite pushback from both Run-DMC and Aerosmith over recording the song, namely Run describing the original Walk This Way as hillbilly gibberish and country bumpkin bullshit, they agreed to do it. Rubin's vision turned out to be correct. The song peaked at number 4 on the Billboard Hot 100, showing that not only can the rap-rock connection be a creative outlet, but a commercial success. Had it not been Ruben, surely someone else would have decided to blend rock and rap, but the results would have been varied. The foundation that was set by Run DMC and Aerosmith paved the way for a new generation of bands in the early 1990s. Bay Area's Faith No More garnered commercial success with their foundational new metal sound, and slowly bands like Korn, Deftones, and Jacksonville, Florida's Limp Biscuit began matriculating throughout the country. Led by the bold charisma of frontman Fred Durst, Limp Biscuit took over MTV as the decade came to a close by creating a hostile, aggro sound that competed with the late-90s soft-pop sensibilities of Britney Spears and the Spice Girls. Limp Bizkit was angry. Angry at the world, angry at the haters, and angry at the environment around them. But whereas seeing contemporaries rage against the machine were providing socio-political messages through their music, Durst was sparking senseless anger. Limp Bizkit were mad at the fact that they had nothing to be mad at. Yet two decades after the release of their second full-length effort, Significant Other, the grooves are still infectious, the rhythm sections contagious, and Durst is still strangely charming. And with that in mind, one has to ask themselves, is Significant Other an art school album? It's just one of
1: those days where
0: you don't want to wake up. Everything is fucked, everybody sucks. You don't really know why, but you want to justify ripping someone's head off. My guest today join me... A few months ago, really half a year ago now, he was the first person I talked to when COVID first hit back in that dystopian universe where everything was scary and we were all afraid of this virus. And I said, you know what? I need a sense of sanity in my life. I need Aaron Bentley. And he is now back on the podcast months later. Aaron, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. Here's the thing. We're still uh, somewhat quarantined. Uh, COVID is still wrecking our lives, even though that feels like a long time ago. I've literally moved houses since the last time we talked. So,
0: Oh, everything's the same. Chicago is once again implementing a stay-at-home order. Uh, despite the courageous effort of the Lincoln Project and John Kasich, and we do want to thank them at the top <laughs> of every show, America is still... A living hellhole. But of course, we have those patriots fighting on the front line. So once again, we just like to thank those, uh, those fine, fine people. But Aaron, I, I'm kind of curious, you said you moved houses, you know, in the midst of what has been six months of more than that now uh, of lockdowns and face masks and muzzles and whatever you want to call it. I'm just curious, how are you holding up and uh, whatever's going on?
1: I'm doing all right. Uh, I work from home anyway. So I'm not sure if I said this last time. So if I did, I apologize to the listeners. But I work from home anyway. So it's pretty normal for me. Although uh, I really enjoy, you know, I do a couple of podcasts. I enjoy getting to do this because this is one of the few ways I get to interact with people. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very happy to get to talk to you today. It, but yes, a- I did. It's an unexpected perk
0: of uh, hosting a music podcast is, oh, I get to have a conversation with somebody once a week. It's really nice because there are weeks in the summer where that wasn't necessarily happening.
1: Absolutely. That's uh, a huge thing. And I kind of don't think about it as much like – I think a lot about, wow, I kind and I'm a pretty introverted person, but I'm like, oh, I kind of need some interaction. But then I'll be kind of in the dumps and then record a podcast and I'll feel so much better at the end. And I'm like, huh, I wonder why I feel so much better than I did before that. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you talk to people, you dumbass.
0: That's a huge factor. (laughs) Another huge factor in possibly feeling good. And I I just want to rip the bandaid off. I want to dive right in. Every once in a while, good music uh, can turn your day, if not your week or your month, around And we brought out the heavy hitters this week. Aaron Bentley, we're talking about the band Limp Biscuit, and we're talking about them because you have been detailing your very public journey through embracing and loving this band. So what was your introduction to them initially, and why in the year 2020 are you finding yourself championing this Jacksonville, Florida new metal band?
1: My introduction originally, I mean, was around the time $3 $3 Bill Y'all came out. Uh, I'm not sure, Faith was probably the first song I ever heard of theirs, if I had to guess. And I remember trying to, a big thing from my childhood was, and I'm going to sound old to the people who probably listen to your podcast, was setting up MTV to record on my VCR through the night because it would, they would play music videos all night long So then I would get up in the morning and like fast forward through them to see what I had recorded. And sometimes you get some good stuff. So I was constantly looking for the Faith video, trying to find it. Uh, Very rarely did I get to see it. But I can't remember if I saw that first or they played on the X Games. And I'm not sure which of those came first, but I was like obsessed with their performance on the X Games. I bought $3 bill, y'all, on cassette tape.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so. curious, what what was the the level of popularity like around $3 Bill Y'all, their first album, and specifically Faith, because cause my introduction to Limp Bizkit, which I could talk about a little bit more in just a second, but it was through... The album we're talking about today, Significant Other, and then their 2001 release with the song Take a Look Around in particular. So Faith was a song that I was aware of for a long time, but it wasn't until recently that I put on Faith and was like, oh my God, this is incredible. But was it a commercial hit at the time? Did it register with you in a big way? Or I guess I, I should say, did it register with perhaps your community at large in a big way?
1: Uh, Yeah, it was a massive song. I mean, they famously, when they were coming up and they would, you know, play constantly and tour constantly, they would play Faith and they would play um, Straight Up by Paula Abdul as, like, their way to get a little bit of buzz. That was the whole idea. That's why they put Faith on that album was, okay, maybe this will cross over and get us some notice. And it worked. Yeah, I mean, I was when did significant other come out 97 97, or 98
0: 97
1: yeah so I was like 11 so yeah this kicked ass to me it's like oh you took this like you took this pop song and turned it into a metal song how cool so yeah I think people generally loved this the people that that I knew
0: so significant other comes out it comes out in 1999 June 22nd to be exact and it seems to give this band a new stratosphere of fame. Suddenly new things are possible for this group. And I was telling you before we went on the air, like I was born in 1999. I was four months old when this album came out. So I apologize in advance, but I like, I grew up with this album because my dad was a fan of Limp Bizkit. I have recently figured out That My dad really likes rap music, but he really does have an affinity for white rappers, whether it be Fred Durst or Everlast. And I've got Everlast tracks that I would highly recommend if you're not a fan, because there are some deep cuts out there that I really enjoy. But like the song Take a Look Around, I have heard that song maybe more than any song my entire life. It was just one that was in the car growing up. It was a song I liked. It was a song that... You know, like when I was playing baseball growing up, we used to always talk about what would be the best walk-up music. If you're going up to bat, what's a great song that could really put you in a zone? And Take a Look Around by Limp Biscuit is on that list. That is a, a tremendous song. But I think most people my age in the 18 to 24 demographic might not understand the sheer magnitude of fame that Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst Possessed. So, can you try to perhaps explain just how big this band was coming off the heels of Significant Other?
1: I think the best way to describe it is that I remember vividly running home from school to watch Total Request Live to see if the number one requested video was going to be the Backstreet Boys or Limp Biscuit. So, Surely to God, even young people understand like how popular the Backstreet Boys were. Uh, you know, one of the most popular music acts of all time, and Lip Biscuit was competitive with them among the type of young people who were calling in to request videos on MTV. So, I mean, they were insane. I honestly think at this time, uh, they were the biggest band in the world.
0: Can you talk a little bit about perhaps the influence that TRL had on you and maybe the the greater culture as a whole, because it's only one of those things that I consumed through hindsight. And I know a few years ago, MTV produced a, a TV documentary on TRL. And I was fascinated by it because it's just there's no modern day equivalent for it. It seemed like something of that era. And I I loved it. I'm I'm fascinated by that show, but it seems like the rivalry of almost the Alpha Limp Biscuit fans versus perhaps the more feminine boy band type supporters was a real rivalry and it really mattered to perhaps a 13-year-old in the Midwest like yourself.
1: It mattered to me big time. Like it hurt my feelings <laughs> if Limp Biscuit didn't get first place, you know? Like I was bummed about that. It was huge. I mean, music videos were huge then. I don't know Uh, there's like no real appeal for music videos nowadays, but at the same time as TRL, you know, MTV also had a show that I can't remember the name of, but they would show like behind the scenes of making, I think it was called making the video now that I think about it. (laughs) And that was huge. I remember going to school like the morning after a making the video would come on and that's all anybody would talk about was like all the behind the scenes from that music video. So TRL was just this cultural phenomenon that, it's kind of a forerunner, I think, to American Idol in a way of that way that they were able to get so many people excited about calling in, right, to vote for something. And TRL was exactly the same way. All you did was call in and vote for what video you wanted to see. Now, who knows if they worked the <laughs> worked the numbers? <laughs> I have no idea. But, you know, you had your little your favorites like, oh, maybe the, uh, the Kid Rock video will move up to ninth today. But... I could only get home, usually, I think it came out at 3.30, so I could usually only get home in time to see you know, the very top of the chart.
0: I, since you mentioned him by name, I, I do have to ask your thoughts, not necessarily on the person that is Kid Rock, but the music of Kid Rock. I was just texting someone about how Devil Without a Cause has some pretty good songs on it. I'm curious to see if you feel the same way.
1: Yeah, Devil Without a Cause is a great album. Uh, I was just absolutely dead in the middle of all this at this time, like Kid Rock, Limp Bizkit. I loved Everlast. I loved Corn. you know, all those bands that I was supposed to like, uh, I really liked. I, I went from, I pretty much only listened to hip hop up until around the time I started getting into Limp Bizkit. Like that was my entry point into this type of music into heavier music. Uh, it's funny. Cause I go from hip hop to like new metal, then into like hardcore. So
0: Yes, that is, that is documented that Aaron Bentley does love tough guy, <laughs> hardcore bands. Uh, he will beat right. you up in the pit. He will die yes. feet first onto you. That is well documented in our Gaslight Anthem episode, uh, where <laughs> Aaron exposed himself as being a, a tough guy, hardcore kid. I'm, I'm curious, though, and may, maybe you talked about this on the first episode, so, so we'll make it brief, but I don't remember. I, I did not know, or at least I don't remember if I did, your early foundations being hip-hop how how did that happen because you're from kentucky correct i know that's where you are now but you're you're from there or at least around that area H- how did a kid like you get into hip-hop at a young age
1: uh my cousin when i was about seven my cousin played for me uh W A.
0: <laughs> that explains a lot about aaron bitley as a whole <laughs> that's a lot yeah, of that's things like, just made that, sense
1: <laughs> yeah that's one of the first hip-hop albums i recall hearing and straight out of Compton and it just like slapped me over the head dude it was like I guess I've always there's always been something about me you know inherent to me that was um, skeptical of and anti-authority you know so to hear these you know fuck the police is like one of the first (laughs) songs I ever heard it was like a hip-hop song it was like well this kicks ass you know and like the first cd I remember buying was Warren G Uh, so I got into that pretty heavily so I don't know, um, you know, I did, I did live in the only town in our school district where there were black kids that I went to school with. And so I do think like becoming friends, just straight up becoming friends with black people when I was young, introduced me to some hip hop. So that helped. But, uh, you know, it's one of those weird things where you know, this was pre-internet, but then once the internet comes along, you're able If you have like little interests, you're able to dip into cultures from everywhere, right? In this weird way, that's like good and bad, but like, you're right. Things that I probably never should have been exposed to, I ultimately end up getting exposed to, uh, often in a good way, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but yeah, it was, it was hip hop. And then, but if you think about it, really, you know, new metal obviously is based in hip hop and then tough guy hardcore is based in hip hop. So it all really makes sense.
0: Yeah, uh, there are a few, I would say, MCs that have spit bars harder than Fred Durst on this album, but I I do kind of want to talk about (laughs) uh, just the scope of Limp Bizkit, because, look, this podcast, it's going on for at least another six months until I graduate college. I don't think we're going to be talking about another Limp Bizkit album on this show, though, so I want to make this all-encompassing, even if we focus on Significant Other, but... Talking about Fred Durst, his fame, I mean, there were rumors for the longest time that this guy was dating or had slept with Britney Spears, and this is Britney Spears in 2000. This is Christina Aguilera in 2000, pop stars at the height of their fame. The other name that Fred often bumps shoulders with was Ben Stiller. And Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about the Fred Durst-Ben Stiller relationship?
1: Well, I don't think I knew much about it until Chocolate Starfish came out and he dropped Ben Stiller, you are my favorite motherfucker uh, (laughs) on the intro to a song. I did find out recently, uh, I did not know this, that they had a falling out later. And this apparently had to do with Fred was supposed to do a song for a Ben Stiller movie. And it's escaping me now what the movie was. But he was like... Basically, he started and was working on it, but was never able to get it finished to the point of th- that he liked it, that he thought it was good enough for the movie. And apparently that really pissed off Ben Stiller. And he was like, I guess, you know, you let me down. You're supposed to do this song for me or whatever. So now they don't like each other. But yeah, uh, at some point, these were like best buds. Fred Durst was definitely trying to ingratiate himself into Hollywood and into like big time fame. You know, he... If you look back at the earliest stuff about Fred Durst, it was never, oh, you know, I just want to do this band forever, make the best music we can. He just wanted to be as famous as possible. And so he he made a lot of famous friends early on.
0: I will say up front, I respect that about Fred Durst. I have the same policy with the band Nickelback. They have no interest in making an aesthetically pleasing or artistically rich album. They want to make money and Party With Women, and their songs reflect that, and they don't try to be anything they're not. And for that, I... Don't have an issue with them. And, you know, I find some of their songs to be catchy. That's besides the point. Fred Durst was a guy, I mean, he has a a brief, an ever so brief cameo in the original Zoolander. And I do love the idea of Jerry Stiller and Fred Durst being on the same set together. I think that is very fun to think about uh, because I'm sure Fred enjoyed King of Queens in his day. That seems like a show that Fred Durst would really like. But it is just it is one of those things like that. That is almost like I'm sure Zoolander doesn't hold up. I haven't seen it in a very long time. I'm sure none of it holds up. But the idea that Fred Durst has this significant two second cameo is probably what holds up the least because he just doesn't register as a modern star someone else that does not register as a modern star someone that fred durst had a ton of issues with at one point was the shocking disc jockey man cow mueller and in 2003 on the summer santorium tour where limp biscuit toured with metallica which i'll let that sit there for a second the fact that those two bands toured together is (laughs) mind-blowing but man cow was constantly on air on Q101 Chicago talking about how Limp get sucked. These guys are posers. These guys are frauds, whatever. And then Limp get plays this show. Man Cow in the crowd plants these people with Fred Suck signs. They're throwing trash at Limp Biscuit. It turns out... On the stage, Limp Biscuit has a uh, a highlighted graphic that essentially says "Man Cow can suck my dick." I believe that was actually the exact phrasing of it. I- I'm just curious in 2020 who you might find more relevant: Limp Biscuit or Man Cow?
1: Well, I have the unfortunate um, pleasure of. Being good friends with Brian Quinby of Street Fight Radio, if anybody knows him, who is obsessed with shock jocks, so I hear about Mancow and what he's up to now a lot more than I hear about Fred Durst. So I don't know. I, I would say Mancow is more relevant in 2020 than Fred Durst is. What's Fred up to? You know,
0: uh, Fred really likes station wagons. I don't know if yeah. you've looked at his Instagram. It is that I have. is one of the, that is all it is. Uh, I noticed uh, this is a a Venn diagram that only uh me Aaron Bentley and our good friend Mike Spears will relate to the Hong Kong based wrestler Jason Lee follows Fred Durst on Instagram I noticed that this morning and I that warmed my heart I just I love that so much and a uh, man cows out there fighting voter fraud and whatever else he's doing who knows uh who knows but we are here yeah. to talk about Limp Biscuit's Significant Other, which, like I said, came out on June 22nd, 1999. It is 16 songs and 59 minutes long. A lot of the times on this show, we go through an album meticulously track by track. On this one, I want to bounce around a little bit. I want to focus on the singles, the four singles on this album to start with, and particularly the second song on the album, which is Nookie. I did it all. Just paint a picture for perhaps the generational impact that this song had.
1: So, this came out like uh, I was just reading about this earlier, five days, I think, before the album came out, the video dropped. And it's essentially just a performance video in a lot of ways. Uh, You also see Fred like walking down the street, you know, and there's fans mobbing him or whatever. And well, here's the best way I can describe the cultural impact I was a band nerd in high school, okay? That summer, after this came out, we had band practice all summer because we were getting ready for uh, competition, you know, band competition. During the breaks of the band competition, my friends and I, who had our own band, would set up our amps and play songs. And we would play Nookie over and over and over again, and the other band nerds would lose their fucking minds. That's the cultural impact of Nookie.
0: I can't recommend the music video enough. If you've never seen it, if you (laughs) haven't seen it in a long time, the website, I I think it was Kerrang!, that does a essentially second-by-second breakdown of everything that happens in this music video. And they have a quote from Fred Durst on the genesis of the video in which Fred says, and I quote, I couldn't think of anything cooler than me cruising through the city, having one chick, two chicks, a thousand chicks following me through the city while my band's really bored playing for a whole bunch of guys End quote. And what you see in the video is Hundreds, or I guess really dozens, of women dressed like Fred Durst, following him through the street, and creating what looked like a really fun atmosphere to be in. And it is where the soft spot for Limp Biscuit opens up for me, and for as corny, and for as alpha, and for as overbearing as they might be, there's something that I think is objectively really cool about Limp Biscuit.
1: I think that's true. Fred Durst is kind of like, I think the Fred Durst thing is that he seems like a regular dude who just happened to be at the head of this band uh, that got popular at the right time. And a lot of that has to do with Fred Durst. I mean, his self-promotion skills are uh, second to none. Uh, And a lot of stuff they did before they ever got popular was off of his back of marketing the shit out of this band. But he also just had that connection to, uh, young men in America at this time, and they had a lot of uh, women fans too, but young men who said, oh, I could be Fred Durst, like, easily. He doesn't have really any musical talent to speak of. That's, like, obvious from listening to the band. Uh, he's just, like, a dude, so I could be that guy. So, I mean, he was kind of the perfect frontman for this band.
0: I think that is, that is entirely accurate. I mean, the strength of this single, which I... I I mean, look. I like the song. It's it's certainly not poetic. Uh, it's not on the same pantheon of a Morrissey chorus or a Gaslight Anthem high point like we talked about last time. Uh, the chorus of this song leaves a lot to be desired lyrically, but the just unchecked rage and anger that is in the song that I think is largely absent from modern day society, or if it is, it's tied up into a lot of like incel alt-right culture when it's done through the Fred Durst perspective, it's just really enjoyable. And this album went seven times platinum off of primarily the strength of this single, which is, I mean, that's, that's insane. That's millions of records being sold and you hit it right on the head. Fred Durst looks like an average guy is average musically at best. And Just He just played all of his cards right, and I watched his performance at Woodstock 99, where Fred Durst is on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people, he's wearing a New Era 5950, he is wearing a DC Shoes t-shirt, he is wearing baggy khakis, and he is kind of rapping, kind of singing, but he's incredibly charismatic, and I think... I could have been Fred Durst. Really? You've seen the way I dress? I'm not that far off from him. I, I think uh, perhaps I'm a little bit more, not well-educated, but maybe a little bit more cultured than Fred Durst, but one or two wrong steps, and I am the the Midwest equivalent of Jacksonville's Fred Durst. So there really is, I find, to be an incredible charm with him. Is that fair to say that Fred Durst, in a weird way, is charming?
1: Oh, he's absolutely charming. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The the band essentially thrived off of Fred Durst's charm, I think, when you really break it down. And yeah, K-Slow could have been Fred Durst. I mean, the only real change you would have had to make, as Fred prophetically said, I think on their next album, Now this red cap gets a rap from the critics. It's
0: it's a line that I use all the time because Fred says, (laughs) Fred says I stay fitted new era committed, which is what I do. I have a fitted hat collection by new era. And now this red cap gets a rap from these critics. I spent four years during the Trump presidency, trying to figure out a way to tie in Fred Durst's red hat into Trump's red hat. And I couldn't do it, but there's a link there and a funnier person than I am could certainly make that comparison I want to talk about the song Break Stuff. It is when we talk about the unchecked rage and, you know, in a sense, this is almost a tough guy hardcore song with a turntable in it. It's just it's utterly ridiculous. And I think this song is synonymous with the unfortunate nature of Woodstock 99. And, you know, during Limp gets set, there are multiple reports of sexual assaults and, and just unchecked violence that is is wrong. And I'm not condoning that. In the slightest but aaron outside of that what do you remember what can you tell me about woodstock 99
1: well the song kicks ass first of all i just want to say uh it's just like just a first, great song. first
0: this song does yeah. kick ass
1: yeah just have to be clear about that woodstock 99 i was absolutely obsessed with woodstock 99 i thought it was the coolest thing that had ever happened I would troll eBay for VHSs of like fan cams of sets and I collected tons of them. Um, You know, I definitely had the Limp Biscuit set, but I had a ton of the sets and I would just watch them over and over and over again. I just loved it. Uh, And I, yeah, I went back recently and watched that the Woodstock 99 Limp Biscuit performance and a lot of things stand out about it. One of them though, is, you know, this insane crowd, obviously Uh, you know, the people there's, as far as the eye can see, as far as the camera can see, there's people. But more than that, behind Fred, you see Jonathan Davis from Korn. You see Kid Rock, Puff Daddy, uh, Ice Cube, I think, is back there. It's like they are there to see fucking Limp Bizkit. And they have to see Limp Biscuit.
0: I'm so glad that you share an obsession over Woodstock 99 because – I know exactly where I first heard of it. As a kid, and this explains a lot about me, I primarily watched VH1 and VH1 Classic, and I was obsessed with their talking head shows. For me, that was what comedy was growing up. I did not know stand up comedy until I was like a freshman in high school. I knew Chuck Nice, Hal Sparks, whoever else, from VH1 countdown shows where they would give a 30-second opinion on REM's Losing My Religion. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. That's amazing. And there was specifically a VH1 countdown show that was the 100 most shocking moments in music history. It was hosted by Chris Jericho, who I know you're familiar with. And one of the, like, number nine or something was Woodstock 99. And I remember being 9 or 10 years old and seeing the fire and the uproar and bands like Limp Biscuit, who I was familiar with, or the Red Hot Chili Peppers, or DMX, or Everclear, whoever it was, and just being like, oh my god, this seems like the craziest thing I've ever seen. And so from a very young age, I began tracking down Woodstock 99 sets on YouTube. It introduced me, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, the first time I saw a... Naked Woman was through Woodstock 99 (laughs) footage. I had not seen a uh, uh, bear titty until probably watching Creed's Woodstock 99 set at 11 years old. It was eye opening for me in a lot of different ways. (laughs) <laughs> and the Limp Biscuit set was the one with Fred sur- crowd surfing on the plywood. You mentioned all of the stars, minus Vern Troyer, who was also oh, on the side you're stage right. I'm there. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, how could you that... forget? Speaking of 1999, Vern Troyer, that's his apex mountain, to steal a phrase from Bill Simmons. Wow. He was at his peak there.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: But I i just became obsessed with this festival, and its it's something that can't be duplicated now. On the simple notion, and I'm inferring here based on what I know, but I I think you can perhaps confirm this for me. The idea in 1999, where there's no cameras and there's no phones and there's no point of contact, I think in a crowd of, say, 100,000 people, it would be like, oh, nothing I do matters. There's so many people here. Let's produce anarchy. Whereas now, if you put that many people in a location everybody's being recorded. Everyone has a phone. It's almost like you're being watched more than normal. And so while I'm not necessarily saying let's light stuff on fire, wouldn't it be fun to party like it's the nineties? It's just something that can't be replaced.
1: That's true. And this is not an original take. This is stolen in part uh, from Matt Christman from Chapo Trap House, but he has made the point very well that Limp Biscuit and Woodstock 99 is everything that is pre nine 11. And when you think about uh, this, this particular set, you know, it's that unchecked rage that but it's rage about nothing in particular, like rage that has nowhere to go. It has to be put somewhere. And that's what you kind of see. Obviously, uh, 9-11 Iraq war is like, oh, here's somewhere we can put this rage. But, you know, music changes. The world changes after this. But also that point you just made about like the surveillance state in a way that didn't really exist. Uh, Woodstock '99, so Lip Biscuit is kind of the the encapsulation of of pre-9/11, and I think that really explains why they were basically never popular. You know, they basically died after 9/11. I mean, they're still around. I've I've been finding out recently that they were touring in 29 Well, 2020, they were touring. They still play shows. I've watched videos of some of these shows, and they are insane. <laughs> like 50 year old Fred Durst in like. Uh, a a fucking I saw him in a Packers jersey and like these long ass like Dickies shorts uh, you know just doing the same old thing and like Westmoreland is like fat now but he still like paints up and does crazy stuff it's just wild
0: I I can't explain why this memory just popped back into my mind but I just had a very confusing memory regarding Lip Biscuit that I probably need to work out in therapy quite honestly but Gold Cobra, their final release up to this point, came out in 2011, which means I'm 12 or 13 years old when that album is released. And I remember being in seventh grade, volunteering for a newspaper club at my school, and the the English teacher that was running it, who was my English teacher, goes, well, what do you want to write about? And I think, well, I can talk about music. Can I review an album or something? She's like, sure, find an album, talk about it. I, I don't think the school paper ever became anything. I think this was like a club that met for two weeks and then people stopped showing up. But I know I had an afternoon where I sat down in a school computer lab and tried to review Limp Biscuits Gold Cobra, which is an <laughs> album That features uh, scantily clad women and snakes on the cover of it. The music videos followed a similar path. But now that I think about it, Limp Biscuit has been a larger part of my life than I realized. And while the highs on Gold Cobra were absent for the most part, not an album I would recommend, the third single off of Significant Other was rearranged, which might be the peak of Limp Biscuit. I think this is not only the best song on the album, with the exception of maybe Take a Look Around, I think this is their
1: best song, period. Lately, I've been skeptical Silent when I would use to speak Distant from all around me To witness me fail and become
0: weak Life is overwhelming Heavy is the head that wears the crown I'd love to be the one to disappoint you
1: It's hard to argue, certainly the best, like from a melody perspective, like the, if you don't use this phrase um, as a negative, the best pop song they ever wrote, like this is a good pop song. Uh, It also shows off how good uh, Sam Rivers is. I know that like, this is the song that's obviously driven by his bass sound, but if you listen to this whole album, so much of this, even Nookie, the verses in Nookie are driven by bass. And this guy is so good. Their whole sound is, is driven by him uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, it's a great song. It, the Woodstock 99 performance also shows like how much work they had to do on Fred's vocals in the studio. <laughs> because he's so bad. This song, he sounds so bad at Woodstock. It's,
0: now, it's. I'm glad you mentioned that. It is such a bummer to put on Limp Bizkit's Woodstock 99, to go through the timestamps and see Rearranged, and then to hear that that's what it sounded like live. It is devastating.
1: Yeah, it's very bad. I will say that in some of the later videos I've watched, he does get better at singing. Uh, You know, they clearly did a lot of work on him. Uh, I was watching, for example, I was watching, uh, I tried to find something from that Chicago summer sanitarium show just to get a sense of like what was happening. And some guy has audio of my generation. That's on YouTube, but it's audio only. And I listened to it and it's like, oh, his vocals sound pretty good here. And that's, you know, four years later or whatever um the the main i have to fit this significant other story in at some point i'm gonna fit it in now two stories really one i have my real like vivid memory is on june 22nd 1990 uh is it eight or nine 99 is uh going to the local cd store buying this and uh mace's double up which came out on the same day (laughs) and uh, taking the CDs to the city pool with me because <laughs> I was so proud of them. And we had like a little boom box, you know, and we we're playing this. But the other, this is a really weird thing about this album. Uh, for some reason, months before this album came out, the lyrics leaked online. Not the songs, just the lyrics. So as someone who was completely obsessed with this band, I printed out those lyrics I read them constantly and I had them all memorized before the album ever came out. I had no idea what they sounded like, but I had all the lyrics memorized.
0: I, I mean, that speaks <laughs> for itself. That is, that is dedication that I, I don't think there's a, an artist out there that if they're like, here's our lyrics, the album's coming out in three months or if they got leaked even feel like ah, that's that just put the songs out too. Like, I can't imagine necessarily caring about an act that much uh, more power to you in that regard. I, I did want to briefly touch on you were telling me before we went on the air. I have not seen Limp Bizkit live. You have seen Limp Bizkit live. Would you like to briefly review that show in your memories of it?
1: I mean, uh, brain bad. So I don't remember a ton about it. Uh, but yeah, this was on the Billionaire Pirates tour, which was System of a Down opening Method Man and Red Man and then Limp Bizkit. Uh, so it was a great a great show, generally. My biggest memory is uh, I had this, I was in eighth grade. I had a crush on this girl who was a uh, junior, I think, in, in high school. And I was just in love with her. And uh, we had talked about that we were going to go to this concert together. Now, it was in Knoxville, Tennessee. So it was about a three-hour drive from where I lived. So uh, allegedly, I was going to go with her to this, uh, this concert. And, you know, shockingly, as we got closer to the concert, she, of course, told me she was not going to take me to this concert. She didn't have, you know, she wasn't going to be able uh, to take me. So I had to convince my mom to drive me three hours and sit outside while I went into the Limp Biscuit concert, which I know you're familiar with uh, the problem of having to have your mom drive you to things. Uh, so that's, that's my biggest memory of the concert. But looking at the set list, uh, I see that. Aaron Lewis came out so that he and Fred could perform no sex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see they did jump around by house of pain. Uh, and of course, myth, of man and red man came out for in together now. So uh, it looks like a great set list. I'm sure it was a lot of fun. I mean, I know I had a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, that's, that's what I remember.
0: So in together now is the fourth single on this album. It's, a song that I wasn't really totally familiar with, which I, I don't know why, because the combination of Limp Bizkit and Method Man together is right up my alley. And, and listening to it this week, learning that the producer on this track is DJ Premier, who was in Gangstar, which is one of my favorite rap groups of all time. It's It speaks to the legitimacy of, of Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit. Like, they're now working with respected people in the hip-hop game. Like you said, Puff Daddy was watching their Woodstock 99 set, and in Together Now, it it it's twofold. One, I think it shows, hey, you know, Fred, he can do all right. Like, there's something about this guy that's not bad, but you put him on the track with Method Man, and Method Man does completely show him up and destroy him in the song.
1: Yeah, uh, Fred at least luckily has the confidence because like, I can't imagine, I I mean, maybe this is insane. I think I'm more musically talented than Fred Durst is. <laughs> but if Method Man was like, Aaron, let's do a song together. I'd be like, no fucking way, not a chance. You will murder me, you will annihilate me. Why would I do that? Fred doesn't, has that has never entered Fred Durst's mind. So his his raps are pretty bad on this song. But something about the vibe, it just kind of works. I don't know if it's just the premiere beat. Uh, I don't know if, you know, Fred's flow is okay. It's just the lyrics are mostly dumb. But this song is great. I mean, it just, I can't listen to this without, uh, you know, pop my head and smile a little.
0: It's the best collaboration on the album because you not only have this with Method Man, you have Nobody Like You, which has John Davis of Corn and Scott Wayland of Stone Temple Pilots. And then you have No Sex with Aaron Lewis. Now, I, I will say when it comes to Nobody Like You, I'm not a Korn fan. I'm not a Stone Temple Pilots fan. This song didn't do a ton for me. Before I go into No Sex, do you have any thoughts on the Cornstone to the Pilots Lip Biscuit collaboration?
1: Uh, I really like it. I mean, (laughs) Corn I didn't like as much as Lip Biscuit, but I think it all kind of meshes well together here. And when Scott Weiland does hooks on Lip Biscuit songs, they always come out well. I don't know. It's just it always sounds good.
0: Right now on the Revolver Magazine YouTube channel, they are doing a multi-part series on the first Korn album, and I would recommend it. It's really... Uh, there've never been a band that I've liked, but I like their commitment to, one, being white guys with dreads, and two, being white guys that wear Adidas tracksuits, and I've always respected that about them. And learning more about this band, just how poor they were and how strung out they were at times... It has made me respect them a little bit more. On the flip side, with Aaron Lewis and the band Stained, and if you want to talk about my mother uh, driving me places, the first concert I went to was in 2006, and it was a show headlined by Nickelback with Daughtry and Stained as the openers. Now, wow! <laughs> now, what a show! So, we were big American Idol fans. My mom was like, this is great. I know my kid loves Nickelback. I like Daughtry from American Idol. There's this band Stained in between. We can deal with that, I guess. Well, the bad news is we got caught in traffic. We missed the entire Daughtry set. Did not see a oh, second no. of him. But we got there in time to see Stained. And I got to say, Stained is a bad... That I don't want to defend. Aaron Lewis's solo work is the most corny stuff I've ever heard. I would recommend the song Country Boy simply to laugh at it. But if you put together the greatest hits of Stained, let's say it's a 12 song album, I think six or seven of those songs are going to be really, really good. And for that, they've always been a band that I've kind of liked. But the song No Sex, which I was entirely unfamiliar with before breaking down this album with you, this is, I've just, I've never heard anything like this. This sounds like the high school quarterback trying to be emotionally vulnerable in like a poetry class and just not knowing how to do it. What are your thoughts on Fred Durst saying that all he wanted to do uh, was, was keep his pants on essentially.
1: Nothing will ever top uh, Fred Durst trying to like compare two things that, you know, made you, you didn't want to do it, but then you had to and just saying that it was his ass. That was just (laughs) impossible To to deny. Uh, I mean, I don't I can't remember. Haven't seen Fred from behind in a while. Can't remember if he's got a nice ass or not. But I can't imagine that it's so nice that someone would just be like, I got to fuck this guy. There's just no way. No way around it.
0: It's it's a really <laughs> funny song and I and I don't yeah. want to make fun of it too much because about a month ago when the new idols album came out and everybody was making like like the the internet nerd music community and the emo adjacent side of that turned on idols, and they are like, these guys suck, their songs suck, their songwriting sucks, and I wasn't okay with that, because what they were making fun of was a lot of the more emotionally vulnerable parts of this album, and if we're going to say, well, we don't want toxic masculinity, which obviously no one does, and Limp Bizkit certainly exudes a lot of that, but if we're going to change as a, as a community, as a world, m- we do need to let this is going to sound real incel. We need to let mid like be vulnerable sometimes. And Fred went for it. He tried it. It wasn't for him. It doesn't exactly hit the same way that rearrange does, but just in the scope of all things, Limp Biscuit, this song is really important to catalog because I think it is so unique and that it is, it is Fred, you know, like, like you said earlier, if you put Fred and method man in the same room together, To Fred, they're the same. They're peers, they're equally talented. Fred is really stripping back a layer of cockiness and charisma on No Sex. And although the song is not great, it is really interesting to listen to.
1: Yes, and it, you know, you could say, if you're trying to think about, like, what's the worst song on this album? And if you started and you were like, uh, No Sex isn't very good. But it is really helped by the fact that it comes right before Show Me What You Got, which is... One of the worst songs ever recorded. Uh, in all in all time. Uh, just wild. I mean, this is so bad.
0: Show me what you got is Fred Durst in the first verse listing a bunch of cities, and then in the second yeah. verse listing a bunch of things that he likes. And that's that's the song. And it's it is a low point on the album. Really you know, show me what you got in lesson learned are it's almost a bummer that that's what ends the album, because as we kind of maneuver our way back, I, wa- I want to talk about a few more songs on the record. But the, the final two don't necessarily pack the punch that you would hope from a new metal album. They really kind of die with a whimper here.
1: I really hate when bands finish albums with slow songs. It drives me insane. Everybody's like, oh, let's do the acoustic song last, or let's do like a bat. Why the fuck would you do that? You have to end your album on like a hard note that's like, oh, wow, I got to start this over right now. I mean, this, it drives me insane. And this is an example of it. And the lesson learned is like barely a song at all. Uh, I mean, it's your classic, you know, which... A main problem with like being into really mainstream music is that if you get in at the early stage, they might have something to say that appeals to you, that you can relate to. But then once they become very famous and popular, there is nothing about their life that's similar to your life. There's nothing that you can relate to. I mean, this is, how often does this happen? Where they end up writing songs about how being rich and famous actually is a real fucking drag, man. And it's not as cool as it sounds. It's like, okay, well, let me find out. I would love to know whether it's good or bad. You know, it's just this happens. To everybody. I'm a big. I don't know. Again, I don't know if I talked about this last time, but I'm a big Jason Isbell fan, right?
0: And I'm I'm sure that was covered. I'm sure at some yes. point of that podcast that it had to have come up.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm a huge fan, and you might learn listening to this that when I get into bands, I get obsessively into bands. So. But, you know, he's getting like into his 40s now and he put out this last album that I liked it, but it wasn't as good as some of the previous stuff. And it hit me that like, oh, you're going to get to a point where you have too much money and are too old for me to understand anything that you care about of what you want to say. And that's kind of what you get out of uh, a lesson learned here, which is just like, yeah, okay, Fred, buddy, Uh, whatever. I'm fucking 15 years old, man.
0: Uh, (laughs) One of the the glorious things that AB has brought into my life is the Working Class Heroes Instagram account, and I don't even say that ironically. Every once in a while, Aaron Bentley's going to throw some Working Class Hero on his Instagram story, and I read those posts, and I am fascinated by them. So the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, especially when it pertains to Fred Durst, may be not as interesting. I want to circle back to the true opener on the album, which is just like this. It's the keeping me alive. I'm following these fat ass beats until I die. fill them with tension, the same dimension. I rumble the earth with my lower suspension. Just this song was on the soundtrack of Big Daddy starring Adam Sandler I think that's probably its greatest acclaim it is a song though that I I think is so beautifully new metal and other than the singles I think this is, is the real high point on the record it's just so simple and of a time period and of music that you know I'm like oh it's fine but really I do like it
1: this is a great song it's a perfect opener for this album uh, and the Woodstock set, it's a great opener for the set. It's just like the way those drums hit at the beginning, it's just like, okay. And we haven't talked about John Otto yet, who is a, an excellent drummer. And like his tightness with with the bass player really sets off a lot of biscuit. Uh, But it also, one thing we haven't said about this album is it's really well sequenced. I think in a way that, and I, I'm going to sound like an old man when I say this, but I don't think albums are as important as they once were. Oh, no. Uh, and I, I'm not going to hold up blip Biscuit as like the height of <laughs> albums, you know. But this album is really well sequenced and they have these little like skits in between songs that I think make this an album that you have to listen from beginning to end. You can't just, you don't get the same thing if you just uh, jump in to a certain song or whatever. Uh, so to me, this is like, <laughs> this is insane to say. But what of like the last albums like this? And I think a lot of it comes from like Fred's, Uh, it reminds me of hip hop albums from this time, which would have like 23 tracks and like eight of them were skits. Right. And (laughs) I think that plays in here where it's like, okay, we got to do some stuff to kind of put this whole album into a, a thing that you can just glide through.
0: Let's talk about the band real briefly. There's one other song on this album that I I do want to make sure I highlight, but the band, we've talked about Fred Durst. You mentioned John Otto. You've got DJ Lethal. And then you've got Wes Borland on guitar. And and I'm curious, because I I don't know at all, were there ever factions within the Limp Bizkit fandom of people that, to coin a modern phrase, were perhaps Fred Stans and Wes Stans? Because Fred and Wes give off two very different vibes and i i like i said earlier connect much more with fred durst than i do west borland but it seems like he has his own almost mythical status with some people
1: all right this is going to be my hottest take <laughs> that i've saved for your podcast the whole there's this whole thing like you're talking about of these like setting these two people apart and well, I think West Borland has played into this mythology, which is the idea that he was always kind of above Limp Biscuit. But you know, he was in this band; they were not even really his friends. But it's just what he did, so he showed up. I think all of that is complete and total bullshit. I think uh, West Borland has created this idea and plays into it, especially as Limp Biscuit started to be seen as like not cool anymore. But if you go back and read stuff from the time you will see Wes Borland talking about how deeply involved he was in putting together all these songs. So the idea that it was just like, Oh, you know, I come and do this stuff. And then Fred comes in and fucks it up. It's like, no, no chance. Even on chocolate starfish, which I think of their first three albums is the worst one. He talks a lot about how uh, Fred was struggling with songwriting. And so Wes was like heavily involved in helping him write these songs. So whoever wants to paint him as like better than everybody else. I think that's wrong. I do think he's an excellent guitar player. You know, that's something that's played up, but still, if you, if you really listen closely to the albums, I think you find that the rhythm section drive these songs more than, more than West Portland does.
0: Aaron, I wholeheartedly agree with that take. I think that is so good. I, I'm not into, the West aspect of things at all, and his silly makeup and his costumes, you know when I listen to music, I want someone real like Fred Durst, Fred Durst is a man <laughs> of the people. <laughs> and West Borland is just off in his own little fantasy universe, and I just, I don't care for it. Now, there's one other song that I I want to be sure we hit on, and that is the song 1999, specifically because I'm recording the, sh- the the show with you. I need to highlight the line, and I will quote Fred verbatim here, you want to be down with the G-Shock, fuck the glam rock, asked out like Ken Shamrock. And I just... I I love this song. It's everything Lip Biscuit is. It's a really dumb, aggressive, angry song, and they're mad at nothing. And for that, I really enjoy it.
1: Yeah, my note here was, I fucking love this breakdown, and not just because he name checks Ken Shamrock. (laughs) Uh, But it's like, if you listen to the song and put that breakdown on, you can't help but go crazy. Uh, It's so good. I don't know what it means. Uh, The G-Shock, I think, was a watch.
0: It was a watch, yes.
1: Yeah, that was a big deal at the time, uh, so you got that. And then it's just like he had that thing where I don't think Fred was a tough guy like in any real way, but, I mean, he got into trouble a lot of times for, like, kicking, like the – I think there was a lawsuit where he, like, kicked a sound engineer or whatever. <laughs> and I have read interviews where the guys are like, yeah, sometimes he would just lose his mind and, like, you know, literally break stuff. Um, but when he said stuff like uh, MCs to test me, what a chest to chest me – but you ain't all about that. I was like, I felt that, you know, 12-year-old me or whatever, 1999, 13-year-old me, was like, you're goddamn right, don't step to me, you know? So I, I really, I really related to Fred Durst in a lot of ways. And it turned out we're both cowards at the end of the day, so it really, <laughs>
0: that's, it really worked. That's the huge factor of this, because 21-year-old me <laughs> is in complete agreement through the point of being a coward as well. Like, I, I would love to step <laughs> up to somebody and then run away. So- yes. That is, in a sense, unless there's any song that we didn't mention that you want to specifically hit on, I think we have thoroughly broken down significant others. Is there anything that we missed that you want to be sure to hit on?
1: Well, we didn't talk about I'm broke, and I just want to highlight I'm broke for a second because I was listening to a podcast earlier today about Chocolate Starfish, and uh, they were saying... Like, how could you like Significant Other and not like Chocolate Starfish? It's the same thing. And I really disagree with that, like heavily disagree with that because I think Significant Other, I mean, Chocolate Starfish was like, let's do Significant Other again. Let's try to do it again. But it's just like a a watered down, worse version of it on this album. And they tried to do Rearranged again. Like how many more times can we do Rearranged on that that album? But like I'm Broke is perfect because it comes right after Rearranged in a way that like brings back the, the heavy stuff. And I think they did a great job of not just of sequencing, but having enough songs on here that they could do some poppier songs, but then they could do the heavy, just rage filled songs that made, you know, 13 year olds like me uh, excited and want to buy these albums. So this is just a great album.
0: I- I'm broke. I have it my notes. It's just such a wild detachment from everything that rearranged was to go into that next. It's, I, to to coin a musical phrase, the range of Limp Biscuit it is on display in those two songs, and it is it is really impressive. It is a really good album. And AB, I want to give you the chance here to let you know that that Entertainment Weekly gave this album a B upon release. It received a three point five out of five from Rolling Stone and only a three out of ten from the NME. The Brits across the pond were not a fan of this. But I want you to set set the record straight here. I need an objective rating out of 10 for a significant other. What, what on earth, uh, if you had to throw the star rating on this, what are you giving this album?
1: Star rating is uh, something like four and a half, I would say, Uh, you know, eight, eight and a half out of 10 or so. I think it's a great album. Uh, I mean, frankly, in 2020, I have loved listening to it and I have probably haven't listened to this album for, I don't know. I, I didn't, I never listened to results may vary until recently. So probably since, you know, 2003 or so. I haven't listened to any of these songs. And, uh, yeah, turned it on recently and loved it. So I just, I mean, it doesn't hold up in like a in that kind of way. You know, I don't think you could argue like, oh, this if this came out today, they'd be huge stars. Um, but it's just good. The music is really good.
0: I completely agree. I- I'm glad it gave you some comfort at 13. I'm glad it's giving you some comfort in 2020. A very, very open-ended question to end the show. But when we talk about Limp gets Significant Other, who needs to hear this album and why?
1: Well, I, I guess people your age need to hear it, right? Because they, you do, if you were born around or after 9-11, you cannot understand what this country was like before 9-11. People thought we were at the end of history, that nothing else was ever going to happen because we had conquered everything. And so there was this rage that existed because it's like everything's so great there's nothing to lash out at. And then everything happened and it's been awful ever since, right? So if you listen to this imagine that this sold what did you say 7 times platinum? Yeah. Uh it sold, you know, worldwide it sold over 10 million records. Uh so imagine that this competed with the biggest pop stars of the time. That's how how much this grabbed people who were alive uh, in 1999. So I don't think there's any better way to understand what life was like before 9-11 than this.
0: It's not a lifetime that I remember uh, the idea that we could be living in a society where we we look at the boxes and we're like, you know what? All these are checked off. I think we're good here. Uh, not one that I particularly understand, but one that I hope we can get to at some point. Aaron, thank you so much for spending an hour with me talking about Limp Bizkit. Is there anything you'd like to plug uh, at all?
1: I would have spent 10 hours talking about this (laughs) album. Just want to be clear. Uh, I don't know. If you have wrestling fans that listen, I do the Everything Elite podcast. Uh, You can search that. And there's no way anyone who listens to this watches Japanese women's wrestling. (laughs) But I do a podcast about that called Jumping Bomb Audio. Uh, So please check that out. I got to tell you, Case... I'm thinking about doing something about Limp Biscuit. Um, I've you, really gotten into it. You have my
0: it. contact information if uh, if you need me to to uh, help you out with that at all. It's really as time goes on. I think uh, you know what I'll make a wrestling comparison because we're at the end of the show. I, there's been a lot of fading towards CM Punk lately that I completely disagree with because I think as time has gone on and he has gotten further away from wrestling, his historical significance and his impact only become more impressive because no one's been able to do what he did. And in a weird way, and I think you could draw some similarities between Limp Biscuit and CM Punk, which are unfortunate, but in a weird way Limp Biscuit I think is is very similar.
1: Yes, I agree, especially Lip get almost even more so like in a, from a uniqueness perspective, because I think they're probably the only band who ever sounded like this who was this popular, uh, certainly. Uh, I don't know that they have any influence because I, this kind of died out with them. <laughs> Very <Although> soon after. <laughs> I, I tweeted this out as somewhat of a joke, but I, I tweeted Fred Durst was the first emo rapper. But I do think that this is kind of a forerunner to emo rap in a way Uh, especially this particular album so there's a lot there and there's so many weird things that happened in the Limp Bizkit uh, run including you know the the Ben Stiller story uh, everything that happened with with Woodstock 99 um, Fred being uh, dead ass broke on their first tour because he spent all his money and so the corn guys would pay him to go out and perform naked I mean just weird ass stuff that happened uh that that needs to be talked about the uh well you would be interested in this the the way they really broke big at first allegedly was pay for play you know they got the the counterfeit song that they uh paid to be played on on radio uh so i think there's just a lot of interesting things about limp biscuit that somebody should dive into and no one has so
0: well, Aaron, I think we have a strong foundation here. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> me on the show. As always, I'm on both Twitter and Instagram at underscore KSlow, lwe And the podcast itself can be found on Instagram at ArtSchoolAlbums. Thank you for listening, AP. Thank you for joining me. This has been Limp Biscuit's Significant Other.